You're listening to the Behavior Change Marketing Bootcamp Podcast for people passionate about making a positive change. We believe understanding your audience is the key to maximum impact, and behavioral science takes this to a whole new level. Join your host, Ruth Dale, and expert guests to explore biases, beliefs, why we do what we do, and why we don't do what we said we would do. Hello, we are so delighted today to welcome to the podcast, Carrie Ross, Nicola Bonus, and Amanda Nash. They're all based down where we're based in Devon. I'm going to hand straight over to them so they can introduce themselves. But just to say, do grab your pen and paper because they are the total pros and they've got some words of wisdom for us all. So Nicola, straight over to you. Please do say hello and a little bit about yourself. Brilliant. Total pro, no pressure. Okay, so I'm Nicola Bonus. I'm the Associate Director of Communications, Involvement and Inclusion for the Devon Clinical Commissioning Group, soon to be Integrated Care System. Big mouthful, I know. I have worked in the NHS. This is my 13th year, possibly 14th. I've completely lost track, to be honest with you. And when I first started, Ruth, you were working in the yes, we, weren't you? Yeah, we were you and I used to do a lot of stop smoking campaigns and sexual health services campaigns. And I even reflect back on those days quite often now, to be honest with you, Ruth, about some of the things we did. In fact, only the other day I was talking to a colleague about Mosaic and never did I use it any more than when you and I used oh, to work yeah. in So been around for quite a while and still really passionate about the NHS. I think I saw somebody on Twitter the other day say, if you cut me, I believe the Pantone blue colour for NHS. And I feel a little bit like that myself, to be honest with you. So. <laughs> well, don't, yeah, don't do that. But oh, no, thank you so much for coming on, Nick. Like, yeah, I do remember when we first started working together. And didn't it feel so, you look back, it was always challenging, always busy, but you look back now and think, oh God, those were the easy days. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, over to you, Kerry, please say hello. Thanks, Ruth. Hi, I'm Kerry Ross and I'm Senior Communications Manager in NHS Devon, the Clinical Commissioning Group for Devon with Nicola. I've been working in the NHS for almost 18 years now and started my career working in a general practice in Exeter. And it really just gave me quite a taste for working in healthcare and gave me a lot of experience working with patients and kind of specialised in general practice and primary care for the first 10 years and then moved over to working in comms and marketing because that was always the kind of dream area for me to get into. And I've been working in the comms team now for yeah, almost eight years. Well, thank you, Kerry. And hello, Amanda. Hi, I'm Amanda. I work at University Hospitals Plymouth NHS Trust which is a large acute multi-site trust. So I actually am based in a hospital and I've been based here for coming up to 20 years now, but work really, really closely. Although I'm in the hospital, I work really, really closely with Kerry and Nicola because we're working much more as a whole system nowadays because for patients, they go to their GP, they come to the hospital, they have their rehab care and it's all one NHS and that's how it should be. So it's more about joined up working, seamless care for patients. You know, there's lots of talk about digital records and integrated digital records. So it's about making services more integrated and better for patients all the time. So we're about working together. I'm also studying behaviour change at master's level. So um, my background is in communications and lots of qualifications like the others in that. But I am studying behaviour change. So I'm really trying to implement some of what I learn and some of the things that I'm studying and using as my case studies are drawn from the work environment. Oh, that's fantastic, Amanda. Good luck with your studies. That's fantastic. 
And I guess Nicola, Kerry and Amanda were the team that took the local NHS through COVID and responded to all of the COVID pressures, including the vaccinations and managing winter throughout then. And when we first got in touch, I contacted Nicola to say, we're looking at how we can do learning around winter, how behavioural science can help plan for winter. And anyone who's listening who doesn't work in healthcare comms would be wondering why we're talking about winter in a lovely May, a lovely May On a sunny day outside. I know. (laughs) But as anyone who has worked in health will know, you always have an eye on the winter. You always have an eye on the vaccination programmes. But as everyone was saying, well, I won't reveal all, but we were chatting about, you know, there's just so much more than winter now. So Anyway, back to, we contacted Nicola because your team won some fantastic awards for your winter work and also your partnership work with Amanda. So I knew that actually, if anyone could share some expertise and some wise words for us looking forward for this year, it would be you guys. And I know Amanda's also got some additional case studies and some really practical examples that she will share as well, because actually we're kind of maybe expanding this topic a little bit to be a bit about all year round. I think the phrase you mentioned earlier was expanding winter. Winter has expanded. So just to get us started, Nicola, could you take us back to, do you remember the pre-COVID days when you won a wonderful award for some amazing social media work around chartered and flu vaccinations? So Nicola, I'll hand over to you. Tell Tell us what you did. Yeah, it was just going to pick up on what you said about the sort of winter planning. One thing I was just going to mention about that, and it kind of picks up on what Amanda was saying about how we work as a system. One thing I think we led on quite early on is that as a system, we try to plan like that. And we, you know, it came from a place of lots of people doing lots of campaigns back in the day when you and I used to work together, Ruth, where people were trying to target the same people at the same time with slightly the same messages with different campaigns. And so as a system, we said, actually, let's just be much more coordinated and let's agree, you know, what might a thematic campaign look like, of which flu is part of that. And that has been something we've continued to develop. So I think, you know, definitely working as one team with one plan that we all contribute to has been definitely something we've continued to grow and see massive success from. So I just thought I'd mention that because it it is important to how you approach things. That's brilliant. That's great news, Nicola, as well, because it was always so bonkers that people would be sort of marketed to from every element of the system, from the public health and the council to, you know, the CCG, and everyone's getting the same messages. Yeah. So that's amazing. You know, it's, it's not a good use of public money, you know, to be not using it in a really effective way with a really strong message that you will get behind. And actually, as a sort of system team, we know that different people have got better expertise in certain areas, and we'd utilise that. And in fact, in vaccinations, I think we went one step further than that and actually worked with neighbouring regions to do that as well. So with people, you know, our counterparts in Somerset and Dorset and places like that, you know, when some were doing really good work, we were like, well, let's just use that, put our logo on and and share it. So definitely, we've tried to be more efficient, I think. That's brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. And not easy, I know. So brilliant. Congratulations on that. And so going back to COVID, tell us all about COVID. So, I mean, COVID was a really significant campaign for us because obviously this was pre-pandemic before anybody really knew, you know, vaccinations were not as known and talked about as they are now, for example. In many ways, this has been a catalyst for people talking about it pretty much every day. 
But before that, obviously, we used to do a lot of targeted work with vulnerable groups, with children, because we know children, you know, are, I don't like the words super spreaders, but, you know, they are the ones that are out there in the community, you know, often with people who are very vulnerable of, of catching the flu. So protecting them and their loved ones has always been a you know a message we, we've tried to land. So, I mean, the sad thing is that obviously the Kobe campaign came off the back of poor Kobe losing his life. And it was just down to the bravery of his parents who reached out to the NHS to say that we would really like to work with you to make sure other parents don't have to go through what we went through with losing our son. And so, you know, I, I, I say this every time, but I just cannot thank them enough. And I have, have a really good relationship with Kobe's mum even now to talk about flu and, and what we do. And she's all, she's always got lots of lovely ideas. So that is really, you know, important point to remember that, uh, you know, it comes from really a difficult place, but actually has achieved amazing things. And, and thanks to Kobe, we managed to get the word out about the importance of vaccination. So I think, you know, the fact that it came from a really real place, it, it's two parents' experience and a real community behind them to share this is what led to it being so successful. So I think if we were going to say what were the really important things about it is we teamed up, obviously, this really poignant story with a real passion of the parents to want to make a difference with what we knew about how we could reach people. And we'd done some research to look at, you know, how are we best to reach parents of two to three-year-olds to really get them to think about vaccinating their children? And we realised that social media was still a place where those parents were very active. And actually, Kobe's parents are very active on social media, more Kobe's mum. So she was very, very keen for it to be a social media campaign. So we talked to them about you know, the type of materials we could develop. And they were really happy to provide photos and do interviews and, in fact, welcomed you know, the, the media into their own home to show some of his things and the things he loved and talk about him. Oh, wow. And actually, one of the really you know, significant memories I have is when his friend wanted to come and talk to the journalists at the time. And God, it was so moving. I don't think there was a dry eye in the house, you know, just talking about how he'd lost his best friend. And so the power of that story and the power of those messages from those parents and those friends were just what really gave the campaign such a spread online because everybody was sharing it. And we teamed up the kind of picture. It was quite a simple postcard, really, wasn't it, Kerry, that we Mm. could do for Facebook? But it had hashtag thumbs up for Kobe. And that's because we used a picture of Kobe. People can't see me, but I'm holding both my thumbs up. With his thumbs up, with his favorite flat cap on that his mum said he always wore. And it became such a significant feature of the campaign. And everybody saw it. And we got people doing the thumbs up as well. You know, like um, clinicians, people who talked about the campaign were doing the thumbs up for Kobe. So it was a simple strap line very simple campaign online and it just it just spread you know so far so I suppose in terms of what it sort of the outcome of it was that we had a 15% increase in vaccinations of children aged two to three which was the highest increase in the country because there was still a lot of health systems that were struggling to increase their vaccinations that's incredible. Well, yeah. um, it was, gosh. it was, in fact, I remember at the time, Kerry, the chart that came through, we were just way above. Really stood out. Yeah. It's way above. An um, achievement. Yeah, it was. It, and it meant so much to be able to tell the family the impact they made. Every week I was able to phone up Kobe's mum and say, 
This is what we've seen this week. So for me, I think it's the most, the campaign I'll probably love the most because it meant so much to them. And, you know, for them, they were able to channel that loss into something really positive. Yeah, that's an incredible achievement. What a wonderful legacy for them, like you say, to bring them some degree of comfort. And Nicola, just looking forward to this winter, we did sort of a bit of a Twitter chat just to say what's everyone worried about. And there seems to be an avalanche of concerns coming in from all across the system. Mm-hmm. But for you, from your experience, what could you learn to take forward from doing that work? And I guess you, you already have, you've been taking that forward every year, but what would you say your biggest concerns? And then does any of this learning, can it help? I think my biggest concerns is one where actually Amanda and I talk about a lot of the time, which is behaviour change. If you're doing it purist, it takes a long time, doesn't it, to see results. And because all health services are under a lot of pressure, workforce challenges, you know, just challenges with demand in general, you know, we've had a pandemic for two years. And for quite a lot of that, people were maybe sitting on things which have since exacerbated. So we're seeing a lot of the of that coming through now. And so being able to do the behaviour change the way we would want to do it is quite hard because we're up against a lot of requests for very short-termist measures, which don't necessarily deliver the long-term change you want to see. And so quite often, I think we're maybe doing a disservice to comms because we're not necessarily using it the way it should be used to really to create that long-term behaviour change. So I think that's a real challenge for us because you know, when things are pressured and our operational colleagues are rightly really up against it on the front line and we want to do everything we can to support them to do things which maybe not necessarily are the things that are going to get the long-term benefit. So that is really, really difficult. Yeah. With the would, would you say that you're definitely still in emergency mode then with the pressures the NHS is feeling at the moment? How do you get the headspace, Nicola, to look forward to plan for winter, knowing that you, you know, every year it's the same in the sense that you've got the these must-have vaccination programs coming. They, these are must-dos. Look at the positive impact that you achieved before COVID. How do you keep that up? I think we're getting to a clear, a bit of a clearer space now. If I'm honest, we haven't had any let up for the last two years to do thinking. In fact, yeah. you know, rolling out vaccinations, responding to the pandemic, we've been in full crisis mode for, for two years and we've had to think on our feet, think quickly. And I mean, I just think actually we're brilliant in that space. My colleagues, you know, my comms colleagues across across Devon and, and actually wider into the community, our involvement, voluntary community, all of those people just really focused on a common goal and we've just got it done. So But I think after a while, people are tired and you can't keep finding, you know, digging deeper into the energy reserves to keep that going. So we have got to almost get to a point now to stop, take, think about how do we plan to be more resilient? So we're not always trying to just be on the back burner thinking, right, let's do this, let's do this. Let's have the things planned in place. Let's, you know, have the things on the shelf that we can use. Let's really be creative with how we do that because I think we're otherwise we're going to run out of our energy yeah and Kerry you're nodding loads you can't <laughs> see but Kerry's like yes yes yes, yes. <laughs> Kerry tell us about winter what are you thinking about planning for this winter and sort of any tips and ideas that you would share yeah so winter I think is really interesting because I've been leading on kind of winter comms and campaigns for the, the system for a few years now and you know winter did used to be a very defined time period with a very defined set of pressures that came with it. 
I think those pressures now run right through the year and they have been like that for the last few years. And, you know, there also we see spikes in that pressure over the summer period, too, with increase of visitors and things like that. People outdoors doing a lot more outdoors and things. So really, our winter plan is a year round winter plan. So our priorities for this winter are kind of our priorities right now as as we're talking as well. So COVID vaccinations are still a huge priority for us and will be as we go into the winter. We have the added bit around flu vaccines for winter, which, you know, is very specific to that time period. But so, you know, very specific priorities around vaccination, very specific priorities about, you know, avoiding all the pressures that we see in our emergency departments, supporting people with accessing the most appropriate services for their needs, really directing people towards 111 for urgent care services. We did a lot of work on Think One One First last year as a campaign. Oh, Think One One First. Think One One First. Oh, I like it. We did a lot of insight work around how people use urgent care services in Devon, you know, how they choose the right service for their needs, what they think is the right thing for them, and what their kind of trust and assumptions are around One One One, you know, the kind of expectations they have around that service. So we've got a lot of insight about One 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 and urgent care services. And then our third priority really is that shift that we've seen over the last two years around a move to more digital-based services and and focus on kind of remote consultations and care. So, you know, vaccinations, reducing pressures on emergency departments and prioritising and and promoting 111, you know, are our key things really that will run through this summer right into winter and that kind of doesn't change. So we're already working on those. You know, we're about to have the Jubilee weekend come up four-day bank holiday. There's a lot of additional pressures in the system that come with that. So our planning, you know, is already in place and is applied for next week. That will keep running for the summer. We've got some really interesting work going on around 111 and the Think 111 First campaign, which we started last summer, where we really want to target visitors more and tourists that come to the Devon area. I think we get 5 million tourists come into Devon over the summer period. And so behavior change and targeting them and helping them kind of be aware of what services are available to them locally and how to access them if they get poorly while they're here is a really big priority for us. And we last summer established some really good connections with accommodation owners, hospitality venues, district councils, all those kind of organizations and people that can help us reach visitors and tourists. So I know you asked me about winter, but like I say, it all kind of runs right through and that's kind of the next few months. And then we'll start focusing more again on flu vaccinations for winter. That's the bit that will change, I guess. And I think anyone who works in the NHS is nodding, Kerry, thinking, yes, there's no such thing as winter (laughs) anymore. It was a bit like when A&E was just busy on a Saturday night. was that about 25 years ago now? (laughs) But still there's this thing in our heads, you know. So there's the peak all year. And I'm hearing you say, like, you've got some very clear segmentation there. You've Uh got, you know, tourists and holiday makers and working with key touch points and influencers with them. But also you mentioned some insight work. So, yay, my ears perk up on insight work. And how important is that insight work to develop your messaging around? The insight work is really the core of everything that we then design and develop from them. You know, we need to understand what people's experiences are of services and their understanding of services to really know how to reach them and and design something that's really going to 
kind of connect with them and make a difference. Yeah. And I think with one one you know, we, we definitely did that. We designed a campaign that was really based around the information that we gathered from people that had experience of using the service locally. You know, the difficulty with it is that that service is often under extreme pressure. It's one of the busiest parts of the system, along with our emergency departments and, and general practice as well, that it's very difficult sometimes to provide something that meets their expectations once we've done a kind of campaign designed on that basis. Yeah, I mean, you've got all this demand coming in, haven't you, really? But there's so much pressure yeah. everywhere. And as a marketing person, you never want to drive demand if there isn't capacity to meet it. But emergency and urgent care is just you can't not direct, can you? No. We did also last summer get some really helpful insight. We commissioned Healthwatch to spend some time in our four emergency departments across Devon just to really talk to people about, you know, what brought them to the emergency department. Had they tried any other services before they came there? Had they been directed there? You know, things like that. Were they on waiting lists for any kind of elective care, you know, and was there attendance related to that? And again, that provided us with so much insight and information about how people use urgent care services in the county that we've got, I think, a lot of information that's going to help us this summer and winter, how we design our campaigns and really target people based on that information. Oh, brilliant. So we should look forward to hearing that. And I didn't pay Kerry anyone. I did not know she was just going to say that insight drives her messaging. Because of course, in our training, that's what we tell everyone all the time. And it doesn't have to be complicated, does it, Kerry? You know, you can get this stuff. If you're working in the system, it is all there for you. It is. And you know, what really helps it as well is good relationships with people like your local health watch, voluntary sector organisations. You know, we can do a lot of engagement work ourselves and we do. We have an engagement as part of our team and they do fantastic engagement work and they've got good connections with voluntary sector organisations and other kind of community groups and networks. But having people like Healthwatch and kind of equivalent organisations help you with that insight work really helps. And they definitely helped us with our one-on-one work. And we also worked closely with the Academic Health Science Network. They have engagement networks and involvement networks. And they just really helped us with that. And it it provided us with so much information that we might not have been able to collate ourselves, you know, because it's just so much and it would have taken a lot of time. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And reaching out to the wider system, like you say, as we've established, chatting with Nicola, you know, it's so, so busy drawing in everyone. That's fantastic, Kerry. So I think that's perfect time to bring you in, Amanda. Say hello, because Amanda, you were talking about some fantastic use of behavioural science, actually in the acute setting, and some real practical examples I think will really benefit the listeners. Could you please share your pearls of wisdom? I can actually, but uh, they're not my pearls of wisdom. The joy of it was that we learned from research that was already out there and we adapted that. Just before I go on to that, I just wanted to say the insight really is core to behavioural change. It's about understanding the people whose behaviour you are looking to change, understanding what motivates them, what the barriers are that they face, what will drive them to do something different and what will sustain them, you know, the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And I think That's what actually we're quite good as a bigger team working at, myself, Kerry and Nicola, about always, always we come back to, well, what do the people who we're trying to influence here, what are they currently thinking and doing and why? So, for example, Kerry talked about the insight work we did in about people coming to ED. And actually, just a bit of a shout out for the comms work that we've already done. 
we found out that 78% of people, for example, coming to Derriford Hospital, which is where I'm based right now, had actually accessed or tried another service before they came here. So that Think 111 campaign had actually been really effective because many people were already using that service. I think a third of the people who'd come here had already tried to access that. Um, So those principles are really there for us. And I think what we're really all quite strong at and committed to as a principle is not just going out and doing something because what we call ISGLIAT. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It is Ah. all insight driven. And I think the 111, it's just worth picking out the behavioral theory behind 111. It's about making the behavior that you want. So you want people perhaps where they're able to not to use ED, but to use another urgent care service. And the principle there is about think 111 first, making the behavior that you want to use 111 the easiest behavior. And that's, you know, I think we're actually quite successful at directing people to other places and they are using them. But sometimes the actual capacity and the operational service struggles to keep pace with the demand, which is forever rising. So I think that actually we do and our outcomes, as Nicola has already said about, for example, the flu campaign and the great work that Kerry leads on winter, there really are some great outcomes there. But our challenge is always keeping up with demand. Yes. And so, Amanda, and you mentioned your studying behaviour change. So thank you for teasing out the behavioural theory behind the words, the copy messaging itself. And also, I don't know if you agree, but it's almost like you want the default social norm not to be to go to A&E. You want the default social norm to be 111. So you're priming people when they're not in a pain situation because it's almost too late then, isn't it? Well, if people are in a pain situation or emergency situation, they'll default. Your system one kicks in and so you'll default to your habits or, like you say, what's most front of mind. And so, you know, if that's brilliant if um, that Think 111 is most front of mind. You're sort of changing some social norms there. Which is why, Ruth, as well, 111 isn't just a winter campaign because it's so important that that messaging runs right throughout the year. So it's really, really instilled in people's minds ahead of when they need it, just like what you were saying. If people are in a genuine emergency, and that's been one of the things that we've tried to do, you know, if you have symptoms of a stroke, a heart attack, all of those kinds of things, then we are the place for you. But in order to be the place for you and to be able to treat those people most in need of emergency care, we have to have some capacity. So that means that those people who need urgent but not emergency care, we can direct them to the right place and that they have a good service too. Yeah. Nicola, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I mean, back in the day, you'll remember, Ruth, the feedback we used to get from people is, I don't understand, I don't know which website to go to, where do I go? And we'd be be pumping out 13 different press releases on all the MIUs and then one on pharmacy. And and actually, it's just so confusing when 111 is now the main navigation. If the system was working perfectly, all you'd need to promote across the whole country is 111. Because actually behind it is a directory of services which should do all of that navigation and making sure people go to the right place for you. So people don't have to feel confused because all they need to remember is 111 or obviously emergency. Mm. They know to go to house of emergencies. But that's where we're trying to, to get to. But, you know, that, that is the, that's the ultimate goal, really. That's the shift. And as Amanda says, that is the easy, the easy option. Make it easy for people. We do like things easy. So Amanda, but please do share your kind of learning from behaviour change and how you've implemented it. 
Yeah, so this is a really good example of something easy. So I read that there was a study done by Barts at Barts Hospital in 2015, and it's around people who don't attend their outpatient appointments. So back to that point that, you know, the NHS has so much capacity and demand often runs ahead. So we only have so many outpatient slots. And it's really important for us that if people have outpatient appointments, that they attend them. It's important for them as patients because we really want them to be seen. But it's also important for us in terms of making sure that we make good use of public money and offer good services in a timely way. So at Derriford Hospital, we already had quite low what we called DNA, did not attend. So the number of people who weren't attending their appointments was very low. But I saw this study from Barts that said they had reduced their DNAs by three percentage points by doing something that I think we would all consider quite simple, but based on really good sound behavior change um, techniques. Most people nowadays, if you've got an outpatient appointment, you get a text-based reminder, usually seven or five days ahead of your appointment, to say, remember that you've got your appointment at the rheumatology clinic on the 14th of February, whatever. Um, so this is standard amongst most hospitals. What this study did is it looked at changing the text message to be more relevant to people and to see which text messages might actually reduce DNAs further. It was a randomized control trial and there was a controlled message which basically said your appointment at the rheumatology or cardiology clinic is on such and such a date and such and such a time. If you want to cancel or rearrange this, call this number. So that was the control group. So they weren't changing that message at all. They were just keeping that one as it was. And then they had three other messages that they tested amongst random patients. And they were these. The first was called the easy call message. And it basically said your appointment is at this clinic on this date to cancel or rearrange call. And the principle behind that easy message was If it takes minimal effort to rearrange an appointment, you're more likely to rearrange it than just not attend. The second message that they trialed was one based on social norms. And that said, we expect you to see you at such and such a clinic on such and such a date. Nine out of 10 people attend. So that's reinforcing the fact that most people do attend their appointments because we often overestimate the number of people who don't pay their taxes or who drive through red lights or who speed. And actually, we overestimate that. So reinforcing the fact that 90% of people or 9 out of 10 people do attend their appointments is really good because then it makes you think, okay, well, if I don't, I'm outside of that social norms and we're social beings, we all want to belong. The third message that they trialed was one called uh, one around salient costs. So it said, we expect you to attend the cardiology clinic on the 14th of February, not attending costs the NHS £160 per appointment, call such and such number if you need to attend. And they found that that final message was the most effective and it reduced their DNAs by 3%. Now, 3% sounds nothing until you transport that into hundreds of thousands of appointments a year. And then it's an awful lot of money and an awful lot of missed appointments. Um, So I saw this and being really interested, thought, well, we could do that really easily. I could talk to our outpatient center. So I did. And just changing our message to emphasize the cost of a missed appointment saw us actually make a little bit of a difference for us, but actually a big difference when you put it into costs. So we messaged to say not attending your appointment would cost the NHS more than £100. We actually did work out the average cost of a missed appointment. 
call such and such if you need to rearrange or cancel. We already had low DNA rates, but we saw that fall to the lowest ever rate for us. It fell by follow-up appointments fell by 0.5% and so did new appointments fall by 0.5%. And when you think that we see over half a million patients a year in our outpatient clinic, that's not insignificant. So it was just before COVID. So we saw our DNAs, don't the people missing their appointments fall into the lowest ever level just due to some wording which was based on really good theory around salient costs. So I think there are, are some things that are out there sometimes from research that can be easily applied. Um, really, I know Nicola, Kerry and I are often working in complex systems around A&E and urgent care and you know it's much harder to affect behaviour change in complex systems. But sometimes there are some really good things that you can just lift and shift. And we did that and we saw our a number of patients who were missing their appointments fall to their lowest ever level. It's relatively simple change. Amanda, that's incredible. I love the phrase lift and shift as well. And um, thank you, because actually it really highlights the importance of sharing the learning as well, doesn't it? Like if Bart's haven't published, if they haven't done it properly and, you know, got the academic rigor behind it, you wouldn't be able to lift and shift. So, so many wins on so many levels. Amanda, thank you so much. Do you have any other ones we'll have to get you back on the podcast (laughs) as you're going through your studies and share your projects (laughs) that you're doing that would be amazing so to finish the podcast we always ask everyone to recommend a book so we'll start with you Nicola please what book would you recommend and why okay well my book is am I allowed to yeah yeah, we're trying to be strict but (laughs) it's too easy if it's too (laughs) so the book I was going to recommend is European Dictators by Stephen Lee. now this book is quite significant for me because it was my A-level history book and I have the best memories of all the education I've done with degree and postgrad and at school my history teacher was by far the most he sort of influenced me the most really in the way he taught and he just the passion around history just came from him really so I love that book because I associate it with with that the best learning in my life and I just think there's so much to learn from history that can shape what we do in the future and actually you know given the current situation this is quite a relevant book really in terms of what it tells us about you know quite often the past comes back to revisit us in in, in very sometimes very scary ways so so yeah I I really love that book and then on a more professional (laughs) level in terms of what's relevant to this podcast I really like the Cheryl Stanberg lean in book I've read that a couple of times and I just love I love that there's a really key bit in it where she says about you know as a woman if you look at how women and men interact differently in the workplace, the one example she gives about her experience of being in a boardroom, how the men always sit at the table and the women sit behind. And I've not forgotten that. And I always make sure I take my place at the table, <laughs> you know, alongside other people, because I think it's just a really, really important point to remind ourselves we're all there, we're all equal. And I, yeah, I really love that. I think it's really powerful. Yeah. And that's a nice little habit, behaviour change that people can apply easily themselves especially in the NHS, you know, that's fantastic. Kerry, what's your book? So my book really that had the most kind of profound impact on how I view healthcare services and the experience of working in the NHS was Adam Kay's This Is Going To Hurt, which is his diary of when he was a junior doctor working in an NHS hospital. And it was just, it was so interesting for me because I'd spent so many years working in general practice and then working in commissioning. 
that I was spending a lot of time writing, you know, comms or marketing or media or anything to do with acute care services, but I'd never worked in acute care myself. So I've never worked actually in a hospital or in that kind of frontline service. So just really understanding the experience of a clinician working on frontline in an acute hospital really changed things for me and just really understanding that experience. And BBC just made a televised version of the book and it's really moving. It's fantastic. Oh, brilliant. Is it tissue time? It is. Watching it. Lots of tears. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, my. And I think it's great for other people to understand, isn't it, when the system's under pressure. So anything that televises that or narrates that is wonderful. So I'll pop that one in the show notes. Thank you, Kerry. <laughs> Amanda, I bet you've got loads, Amanda, if you're studying behavior change. <laughs> I have. I mean, books, you can't go wrong by, with books by Susan Mitchie for behavior change. So things like the behavior change wheel and her compilation of behavior change theories is really, really good. So I'd recommend those to anybody interested in behavior change. And they are all kind of uh, marked red, so they're quite thematic. Sorry, Nicola, you've had two and now I've gone into three, haven't I? This would not <laughs> be allowed on Desert Island Discs. Um, Susan is I really like Social Psychology by Vaughan and Hogg. I think if you're interested in social psychology, it's a bit of a tome, but you can dip in and out of it. And I found that quite helpful. But my go-to favourite read is actually a children's book called The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. And um It's just such a lovely, lovely concept, which I can't share with you because I don't want to give any spoilers. Um, But it's one of those children's books that is as accessible for adults as it is for children. And I'll never forget sitting on the beach, crying, reading a children's book and thinking, what on earth am I doing? But it's actually a really, really great book. And it isn't really a tearful book at all. But if there's a book that I wish that I'd written, it would be that. It's an excellent book. So I think that probably the lesson for me about that is It's great to be academic, but it's really good to have your feet in the sand as well with a kid's book. Yes. (laughs) And and holiday, Amanda. (laughs) That's the bit I tuned into. (laughs) Thank you. I so you guys are gonna make us all cry in one way or another. (laughs) With happy tears. We try, um, you know. It means you feel something and that's important. No, but it's so great to reconnect with you. It's wonderful. You're like behavior change and behavioral science seems to be at the core of everything you do. And you're doing it to such a high level, Amanda, testing, evaluating, even having that data to share with everyone is is critical. It's important if we're ever to stop repeating ourselves, as we mentioned at the very beginning, Nicola. So thank you so much, everyone. Really appreciate you sharing your pearls of wisdom and also showing everyone how easy it is and how behavioural science can just be what we do at work. So thank you, guys, and I hope to reconnect with you again soon. So I'm sure you all agree they are incredible. I don't know how they've managed to maintain the momentum they have. The energy and the passion they bring to this subject is just elevating. It just makes you want to do more and do it better. So thank all of you. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast and sharing. And actually, we all had a chat afterwards and there's loads more to talk about. So we're going to get them back to talk about vaccinations. And so just for any of you out there, if you do want to elevate your own learning, you want to learn how to apply behavioural science in the job, in the day job. So this is how you use behavioural science when you don't actually have a marketing budget. 
come along to Bootcamp, you will be in great company. You'll be surrounded by people. We're all on the same mission, trying to do some good. So please do get in touch if you're interested. You can head over to www.socialinsightmarketing.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Did you enjoy this episode? If so, show us some love and leave a review on iTunes. We'll leave you with Ruth's favorite quote from Alice in Wonderland. I knew who I was this morning, but I've changed a few times since then. Got a favorite quote about the magic of change? Tell us over at the Behavior Change Marketing Bootcamp Group on LinkedIn. Join us for a Mad Hatter's Tea Party, virtually. 